Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Masters on Sky Sports, now half price for six months. Witness all four unmissable days live from Augusta. It's one of the grand theaters of the sporting world. Oh, what a shot! You couldn't script this for a Hollywood movie. The best place to watch all four days of the Masters live. To join or upgrade and get Sky Sports half price for six months, search Sky Sports Golf. New sports customers only. Standard pricing applies after six months. Further terms apply. And welcome to Pods A and Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and our political editor Rob Parsons joins me today as well. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Morning, Jerry. I'm good. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. As we record this, it's the morning after the budget, isn't it? So um, I'm feeling a little bit frazzled. It's like uh, Christmas and birthdays and everything else for um, it rolled into one for people like us, isn't it? How are you? How are you feeling today? I think so. I think it's, uh, yeah, you, it's one of those days where you're inundated with so much information uh, and it's hard to make sense of it and work out which bits you should be focusing and concentrating on. And actually uh, the day after you can kind of uh, think things slow down a little bit and you can start to uh sort of see the wood for the trees and um yeah try and make make sense of some of what's come out without the sort of spin loaded onto it which which comes with the the actual day itself yeah i think i was um i said to you yesterday didn't i that um it's completely different to last year when actually i was still in in the commons in westminster seeing Rishi Sunak deliver what was then his first budget and it was crazy to think you look at the pictures from last year the chamber is packed full of MPs and that's after an MP had been diagnosed with COVID as well and actually I'm pretty sure that I got COVID from the Commons that day. Um, I distinctly remember calling um, our news editor Paul Jeeves and saying I'm not feeling that well and him basically shouting at me to go home like get home get home now so it's a bit different this year. Yeah although you have managed to uh, battle through the budget with with a, a debilitating ailment haven't you? Yes, I've got a wisdom tooth coming through, which is perfect timing. And uh, I also had a flat inspection yesterday and helpfully the inspector turned up just as Rishi Sunak was talking about free ports. He was very confused about why I was so intently staring at my laptop. So uh, (laughs) all these working from home... (laughs) Fun, fun things. But yeah, I mean, it's it was quite an interesting budget, wasn't it? Because Rishi Sunak had this backdrop of COVID, this massive spending for the last year. We know that last year's budget was basically wiped out within two weeks when he had to come back and announce a load more 
um, support. But it we 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 put on our front page really says that it's a bit of a budget for the north. Do you want to tell us a bit about some of the measures that we that we had? Yeah, I mean, I guess the you know the the overall national picture was that it was this sort of a, a spend first, tax later budget there's all these you know support measures being put in place to get us through the pandemic and then will come the uh you know bank banking on the economy being strong enough to uh be able to withstand some tax rises uh from 2023 mm-hmm. but from yeah there, i mean there was a lot of news from a, a northern point of view quite a few winners and losers i mean obviously people in teesside are going to be very happy today they've got the the northern campus of the treasury they've got this freeport status which are these these special economic zones with different rules to make it easier uh, to do business and they've got this big investment in port infrastructure to help develop their strengths in offshore wind um leeds is going to be very happy we're getting the uk's first infrastructure infrastructure bank being based in the city mm. uh which is a big news i think and there's a host of towns across Yorkshire and the Humber, like Whitby and Morley and Grimsby, which have found out how much they're getting in this towns fund. And it's, it's quite a substantial amount. So, you know, 20 million, 25 million a piece, which is going to go quite a long way to helping uh, sort of these, some 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 of these towns are, are struggling a bit, the town centres, to, to sort of rejuvenate them going forward. But so those, you know, those places are all thinking that the budget's great. But there's a few places, I think, in, in the North who feel like they've been largely ignored. And I've I've been speaking to senior people in Hull today, and they're quite staggered uh, by how little the city is getting from the various um, place-based funds. So there's it, things like the Towns Fund uh, and this, this levelling up fund, which is um, uh, which was kind of more details we heard about yesterday, and the, which contains a, another fund, the Community Renewal Fund, so lots of different funds, all of which do... It's funds all the way down. It, yeah, it's fun, 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 fun. Uh, and it, it, they, all, they all do slightly different jobs. Um, and um, But the, the Community Renewal Fund, it was designed to level up and create opportunity across the UK in places most of need. And it, it had 100 places which are going to benefit from it. And it's drawn up on economic criteria and Hull, which is, I think, the fourth most deprived local authority area in the country, was not on there which uh is a big uh surprise for people in in the city and and sort of makes them feel that they've that they're kind of not getting the same attention that places like uh like the Tees Valley are getting and it, it what seems to be surfacing particularly amongst the uh, labor people is this accusation which the government of course denies of a pork barrel politics where the <laughs> ro- rolling parties uh that ruling parties supposedly channel channeling public money to particular constituencies based on political considerations i mean it's, it's not yeah, a term you so... hear much in, uh, in in uk politics it's more of a <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you watch the west wing a lot you hear you hear the phrase uh, bandied about there but it's uh starting to surface a bit more and it, it, i think it was it was mentioned specifically at rishi sunak's press conference yesterday wasn't it that that, that phraseology was... yeah i mean so that's what i was going to say and i think it was the ft that um the financial times that asked me about it and i think they're, they're saying that 40 out of the 45 uh towns or cities because wakefield's on there as well but let's go let's stick let's keep it simple with towns on this town's front list are represented by um conservative mps and yeah that basically was asked if this was a case of naked pork barrel politics um which yeah like you say isn't a phrase that we hear often and i think you're quite right i've seen some stuff this morning as we speak as well from places in the northeast who feel like yeah Darlington and the Tees Valley are getting 
a load of attention, but actually places like Newcastle and the wider area feel like they've been a bit neglected. Um, but for those people that have got the money, I spoke to Wakefield MP Imran um, Ahmed Khan just after the budget was delivered, and he was over the moon. He said they've got loads of money, basically, to do all these things. Um, but of course, that is a key red wall seat. Um, so you can kind of see why these accusations are kind of surfacing. Rishi Sunak said to himself that, you know, no area is excluded from bidding. That's in the levelling up fund particularly. Um, but it's just that there's this formula that different areas have been put into different categories, different priorities, including his own area of Richmond, um, right up the top in category one. And he said that some areas need basically a bit of extra help to get their bids in. And that's what this is. Um, but, you know, people like Dan Jarvis have really said, well, Barnsley, for example, is in category two. Is that really, does that really make sense when places like Richmond are in category one alongside like Bradford? Um, maybe not. But yeah, the Chancellor says this is all transparently published. Um, so we'll just have to see how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to, to be fair, it's hard to make a charge of uh, electioneering stick in relation to Richmond being in one of the top categories, given that Rishi Sunak <laughs> uh, has a 27,000 vote majority, uh, which is the <laughs> second biggest in, in Yorkshire. So I suspect he's not banking on getting a bit of extra transport funding to retain his seat. But yeah, like you say, I think it's a lack of transparency in the way that these things are decided, which allows these um, accusations to uh, to sort of linger. You, you remember the controversy over the Towns Fund originally and the fact that some areas were chosen despite not being deemed a high priority. I think Stocksbridge uh, on the outskirts of Sheffield was one of those, which uh, again is a uh, now a Tory-held marginal, uh, which was not deemed high priority by the government's own criteria, but nevertheless was chosen. So I think the this precise criteria for this new levelling up fund has not been released yet, but I think there'll be a lot of interest when when it is and uh, i suspect there'll be a few people going over the totality of the towns fund the leveling up fund the um the community renewal fund and sort of analyzing uh, which areas are getting the money and whether there's a, a political uh, dimension to it and obviously um that you know the big winner out of the budget yesterday the, the tees valley uh, ben houch and the conservative mayor is up for re-election in May, which I think is is a fact that's not gone unnoticed uh, by uh, uh, a few people. No, exactly. It's been a, been a big win for um, his part of the world. I think, yeah, if, we, if we're talking about who it was, what won it, I think it might have been uh, Ben Houchman, what won it. I think this, so. Uh, this I, th I think so. I mean, <laughs> the other interesting thing, I think, is that uh, the phrase Northern Powerhouse was not uttered at all during yesterday's mm. budget, which uh, some people picked up on. And I think perhaps that, that presents a bit of a shift in the bits of the North that are being prioritised. So I think when George Osborne came up with the, the Northern powerhouse phrase, it was largely centred on uh, on big cities. So, you know, Manchester, Leeds, uh, Newcastle maybe, were getting a lot of the attention because the theory was that these big cities were sort of the engines for economic growth and you've got the sort of agglomeration of um of skills and uh, infrastructure around them that would allow the rest of the north's economy to thrive and uh i i i wonder whether the 
greater emphasis on towns and uh, away from Manchester and Leeds is sort of rep- uh, sort of represents a bit of a, a shift away from that way of thinking uh, and uh, and um, yeah so that and that's why we didn't hear much about the Northern Powerhouse. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the phrase Northern Powerhouse has gone a bit out of out of fashion and uh, leveling up has come in really. Um, kind of overall, I think the budget was you know really interesting politically as well because Rishi Zunak is still having to make a lot of interventions, state interventions that really make a lot of traditional conservatives quite uncomfortable. And they're reassured by the fact they still believe that these interventions are temporary, that they're the kind of, you know, arm of the state will be rolled back once this crisis is over. But there there were some difficult decisions, I think, for him in there. You know, he's become the chancellor with the highest tax burden since the 60s and you know, I think it's it's a it feels like a marked change from conservative politics that we've seen in the last few years. And one of the really interesting points for me actually was that Rishi Sunak has almost nicked Labour's revenue making ideas, i.e., raising taxes of you know corporation taxes going up in a couple of years and the personal tax threshold is being frozen. And it's going to be really interesting for me to see what Labour does next to kind of combat that because Keir Starmer's response to Rishi Sunak's budget yesterday almost felt a bit to me like him just saying, oh God, it's really such a shame that, you know, you're delivering a budget that I can't really respond to very well. Um, I think Labour are in a bit of a tricky position responding to this. I think you're right. I mean, I think, yeah, there's there's wider concerns aren't there about uh Keir Starmer and how he positions himself uh going forward with the 2024 election in mind given that as you say a lot of these big sort of uh, statist interventions are being made by the conservatives uh and like, where does where does that where, where does that leave him it's it, it's well maybe we'll see in the coming months yeah so I mean it's definitely interesting um look I do have a guest on this week it's uh it's not just us prattling on forever um I've actually got uh, Dr. Christian Niemitz on, and he's from the Institute for Economic Affairs, and he published a paper. Um, it is a few weeks ago now, but I think it's worth revisiting about how the coronavirus has really kind of entrenched people's already, you know, established belief systems. And he particularly focuses on austerity. He concluded that actually austerity um, didn't have a massive effect on how we responded to the pandemic. And um, he said some quite controversial bits about the uh, NHS as well. So let's hear what he had to say. Right, well, Christian, it's so, so good to have you on Pod Zone Country because I was um, saying before we started recording, I've seen you on all kinds of shows recently. You've been about, and it's all about this report, isn't it, that was released Oh, well, by the time we released this podcast last month, all about kind of what we what we're kind of learning or not from from the pandemic. Do you want to do you want to kick us off and tell us a bit about the report and what you found? Sure. The report is about debunking a couple of popular economic fallacies or rather Mm -hmm. fallacies that have become popular over the course of the pandemic, wrong interpretations of the pandemic and wrong lessons that we're learning from it. Um, It's been a general tendency that I've observed that since the start of the pandemic, lots of people have tried to read a vindication of their own 
worldview into it, mm -hmm. um, trying to see whatever happens as somehow a proof that whatever their pet causes were before the pandemic um, is now more urgent than ever and a clear proof they were right all along. Uh, one of my favorite examples here is you could see Remainers saying this shows that Brexit was a mistake. This shows the, this highlights the importance of European cooperation. But you could also see Brexit here saying this clearly proves that Brexit was the right thing to do. This highlights the importance of national independence. And, and therefore, wherever people were coming from ideologically, everyone somehow thought that they had been vindicated. And um, I'm saying some of these, most of this is harmless, but some of these uh, interpretations are reaching the status of a conventional wisdom. You just see people repeating them without feeling the need to, to justify that. And I've picked out three. One of them is the idea that Britain did particularly badly during the pandemic because of austerity, because the British state isn't large enough, the public sector was uh, supposedly hollowed out. The, the second one is the idea that uh, we were badly hit because the economy is too globalized. This is all a crisis of globalization going too far. And the third one, and that's the one which attracted some of the uh, less than favorable responses, was the it's, it's about the claim that the NHS has been some kind of poster child and superstar performer of the pandemic. Whereas I'm saying if you actually... Uh, compare, if you look at the data, if you compare the best performers during the pandemic to the worst ones, uh, none of these three ideas stack up. Yeah, absolutely. And there's loads to get into there. And I really want to delve into kind of each section as as we go through it. I'm, I'm really interested in this austerity stuff to begin with, because, you know, obviously, we report on Yorkshire and the north of England, and we do know that austerity has hit those areas of the country hard. But what you're saying is actually that didn't really play into the, the response to the pandemic. Is that right? That's right. Yes. If somebody wants to make a case for higher levels of public spending, then fair enough, they, they can make that on its own terms. But if you look around, if you look at the um, the countries that have been worst hit, uh, apart from Britain, that would be Belgium, and Italy, for example, and they have colossally high levels of public spending. The Italian state spends almost half of GDP, which is about the level that we see in, in Scandinavian countries. And in Belgium, it's even more than that. The Belgian state is one of the largest in the world relative to the, the size of the Belgian economy. And if that is not enough, if public spending levels of, uh, of, of in excess of 50% of GDP, if that's still not enough, then uh, I would like to know how much is, how much do uh, the people who make this austerity claim, how much do they want the state to spend? Do they want uh, public, uh, do they want a state the size of the, the Cuban or the North Korean state? It, it really isn't that. And you can see on the, at the other end of the spectrum, the, the, the countries that have done best at uh, the best job at containing and managing the pandemic, such as Taiwan, Hong Kong, their public spending is only about half of what it is in Britain. It's around 20% of, of GDP. And they've shown that, that that is more than enough to uh, come up with an effective pandemic response. Because for in the main, an effective pandemic response isn't about spending money. Uh, of course, uh, everything costs money, but it's not that that, that requires a, a massive uh, public sector. It's uh, mostly things like coming in with selective travel restrictions uh, at the right time or just 
more generally reacting quickly, responding early, and uh, enforcing quarantining requirements. Now, of course, all of that costs some money, but uh, not in the sense of if you express this as a percentage of, of, of GDP, it would be next to nothing. It, this isn't uh, something that, that you have to spend a lot of, of money on. You have to have the political will to do it. That's really interesting because it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's a case of, you know, like you say, however much public spending you have, there could be no preparation for kind of a pandemic of this scale. Is that is that kind of the, 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 the thinking? Yes, it's also that. And then nobody was truly prepared for it. Uh, that's why I also don't accept the idea that... Um, that we cannot compare Britain uh, to Taiwan or, or, or Hong Kong or South Korea. There's this argument that they were prepared because they had the SARS pandemic of the, of the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And okay, that played some role, but nonetheless, this is sufficiently different. This is a very different kind of pandemic, yeah. and they had to react in in different ways. So our current uh, concept of of contact tracing with uh, with, with smartphones that, that was clearly not a thing during the the SARS pandemic, uh, and uh, the whole testing capacity. A new test had to be devised. There was no you can't use a SARS test uh, and 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 convert it into a COVID. Uh, testing kit and therefore it was sufficiently different and nobody was truly prepared there is um i mean if you imagine uh you could or, or imagine two years ago we had somehow known uh that there would be a pandemic but without knowing the specifics right so imagine a time traveler from from now uh travels two years back in time um <laughs> tells people uh, I'm from the future and a pandemic is coming, but then somehow dies before they can reveal any specifics. Uh, what, what exactly would we have done differently? Because that's, that's not how this works. There is nothing obvious that you can do to prepare for a pandemic. You can't prepare for it in the way you prepare for, let's say, the possibility of, of a war or flooding. Uh, if you expect flooding, okay, you put up a, a flood barrier. But how do you prepare for, for a pandemic unless you know the specifics? There's just no obvious way to do that. And that's why nobody was really prepared. And I suppose that leads on to your your kind of second bit about the you know the globalization gone too far thing that that surely can't be a you know a, a a lesson that we've learned something that is that is kind of true because like you say we couldn't have known this was going to happen so how can we say that globalization has gone too far can you tell me a bit about that part of the report because I think that's really interesting because you know before before we get into that people do get bogged down, don't they, and cemented in these ideals. You mentioned Brexit before, and we see that then. We see that in kind of the polarisation of our politics. Is it kind of another example of that as well? I think that that's, that's exactly what it is, that there, was, there were people who were uneasy about globalisation before and who now interpret this as just another... Uh, just another vindication of that idea. And... Um, no, the the globalization argument, the the argument that this is about too much globalization, is uh, true in a trivial sense. Uh, it's true that if this had happened half a century earlier, fifty years ago, um, then the, if this the virus had developed, then then it wouldn't have reached us because uh, 
China was completely yeah. isolated from the world at the time. It had almost no economic contact with with the west and there was no particular reason for people to to travel there and the chinese people couldn't even get out and therefore it probably would have stayed there and we would never have heard of it so in that sense it's true but uh that doesn't mean that um once china had become part of the global economy it doesn't really matter whether you trade a little bit with China or a moderate amount or a lot or ve- or, or, uh, or or very much. Uh, it's not proportional to the level of uh, the, the the COVID risk that a country is facing. It's not proportional to the uh, the amount to the level of exposure to China that you have. You can see this simply from the fact that uh, again, if you look at Belgium, uh, just as badly hit as Britain or or, or maybe worse. And in their case, they're not trading very mm-hmm. much with with China. Uh, China is is a, is a very small proportion of uh, of Belgian imports. That's simply because Belgium is a is a European economy. Most of their trade is with their larger neighbors, and uh, therefore they're, they're just not trading very much with China. Uh, nonetheless, that didn't help them very much. They were, they were just as badly hit as everyone else, and uh, or, or worse. And um, more generally, if you look at the way the virus uh, reached us, it's uh, it's true, of course, that it first traveled from Wuhan to northern Italy, uh, probably via tourism. But once it, it was in northern Italy, mm-hmm. it then spread mostly through intra-European travel. It's not that people all picked it up directly from for, through contacts uh, in, in, in China. It's, uh, and there has been... An, analysis of this, of the COVID cases that were recorded in Britain, where, uh, I don't know how they do it, but they can somehow trace where that uh, particular virus comes from. And in most cases, it wasn't directly imported from from China. It was uh, people who picked it up while they were traveling to France, to Italy, to Spain. So it was intra-European travel that, uh, that, that led to this spread. It was. It probably started simply because there were uh, a lot of people um, who who w- went on skiing holidays in the Alps, and uh, that that became a COVID hub. There you had people from all over Europe, and then when they went as they went back home, they passed it on there, became super spreaders. But uh, nonetheless, you don't hear anyone say we should somehow uh, limit intra-European travel. Uh, of course, there, there, there's an argument for, for doing that now during the pandemic, but nobody would say that in normal times, uh, we should close the borders all the time. And uh, nobody has a, has a problem with, uh, with, with intra-European travel. And uh, it's only because there was this, this pre-existing narrative that we were too exposed to China and uh, there, there was and a lot of people somehow uneasy about that. And uh, that therefore, the pandemic was also interpreted in that way. But the way, mm. if, if, you're, if, uh, if you're consistent within this line of argument, then you would also have to say, uh, we, we shouldn't just cut ties with China. We have to become like North Korea. We have to completely close the borders to, to everyone. Because uh, clearly, if, if, 
even if uh, Britain on its own cut all ties to China, had no contact whatsoever, um, it would still have been true that, uh, as I said, the people picked it up in, in northern Italy, in Spain and France, they would have brought it. it uh, once it was out of China, it didn't need China anymore. From then on, it went its own ways. It feels like a Pandora's box type situation to me, I think. You know, you can't you can't contain the fact that globalization is a part of the modern world. So it almost seems like not to not to say that your report is mute, that's not what I mean, but it's a bit of a moot point, isn't it? Because, you know, this is this is the world that we live in. So that's that's kind of where we are. That's just how it is. You can't put it back in the box. You can't go back fifty years. So it seems like those positions are yeah, like you say, maybe just a way for people to entrench themselves in their already established beliefs. So I quite I quite see where you're coming from. It's a really it's really interesting, I think, in the context of our wider politics as well and how, yeah, all those different things um yeah, tie the, the, in. The, the... The, Pan, the Pan Pandora's box is a, is a good analogy here because they're <laughs> uh, in the same way. It doesn't matter whether you open the box one inch or two inches or whether it's wide open. As, as Once it's open, it's open. And uh, yeah. then the degrees don't matter anymore. And it's the same with, uh, in, with respect to uh, trade with China. It doesn't matter whether, uh, whether imports from China account for... 1% of imports or whether it's 5% or 10% or 20%. It, 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 uh, the the, uh, the the virus risk is not proportional. It doesn't work that way. It's an, it's an either or thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, let's talk about the most controversial part because I don't think we can ignore it. And that is this part about the NHS. And actually, before I... Um, was a uh, political correspondent. I was a health correspondent in a former life. So I have a little bit of a taste, actually, of the backlash that you've got off of this, because it does feel like sometimes in this country, you can't scrutinise the NHS without facing a lot of backlash. And I, I've experienced this as well, actually, when things have gone wrong in the NHS, and I've reported on it, that people say, oh, no, you can't possibly criticise the NHS. It's, you know, the sacred cow, you can't really go near it. So tell me a bit about what you said in your report and kind of what has, what's happened since, because this has been the one that's hit the headlines, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and no, I, I didn't say very much uh, on that issue, actually. I, I just said... Um, that in uh, well, the the question I asked in the report was: Is there a type of healthcare system that has clearly outperformed all the others? And the answer to that was no. Um, if you look at the best performers, their healthcare systems are not very similar to each other, and it's and we therefore can't say this type of system is clearly more pandemic proof than that type of system. Uh, but there's certainly no evidence to that to suggest that the DNHS has been particularly good. Uh, we've had one of the highest death rates in in the developed world, and um, now I know some 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 people claim that this is because of of over reporting or over recording. Uh, but if you look at there, there's, there's a simple way around all this. We can simply look at. Uh, the uh, the number of so-called excess deaths, which means um, the the number of deaths over mm -hmm. and above what, what we would expect in a normal year, and uh, 
doesn't doesn't then uh, really matter uh, how exactly you you uh, define a COVID death uh, or the whole distinction between uh, dying with COVID or dying of COVID doesn't matter. You just look at is the, the number of deaths unusually high or not. And if it is, then you can conclude whether there's, there's a problem here. Uh, if you look at that measure, Britain is still one of the worst in at least among high income countries uh, in, in the developed world. Britain is one of the worst. Um, now, that's not specifically because of the NHS, and uh, I'm making very clear in the actual paper that 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 it isn't. But what I'm saying is, we can um, we can narrow things down a bit by comparing Britain only to countries that had similar levels of uh, similar COVID infection rates, so similar numbers of people mm -hmm. um, being tested positive. Um, because then you really are comparing like with like. From then on, uh, then I would say the healthcare system matters somewhat. Uh, if you just have yeah. huge number, a huge number of cases, uh, then that is, of course, not the fault of the healthcare system. There's nothing the NHS could have done about that. That has to do with political decisions, such as the decision to keep the hub airports open. When, when you have an international hub airport like Heathrow uh, and it's open the whole time during a global pandemic, then, then yeah, that, that is not such a bright idea. And that, of course, you can't, uh, you can't blame the NHS for that. But if we look around, um, so, so a lot of a lot of the neighbor countries had very similar levels of uh, s similar numbers of COVID cases per million people or per hundred thousand people. Uh, in the Netherlands, almost mm -hmm. exactly the same as here in Switzerland, almost exactly the same, a bit higher actually. Uh, and beyond, then there's there's Israel where they they had actually even higher. Uh, numbers of COVID cases, but nonetheless, they all have lower death rates. And there, I would say, the healthcare system probably has something to do with that. How much exactly, I don't know. That's something about which we'll have to see in over the next couple of years when we get more detailed analysis of this. But um, you can't tell me that if five or ten or a dozen countries all have very similar levels of uh, of COVID prevalence, similar numbers of, of people who are infected, and but but some have much higher death rates than others, then you can't tell me that this has nothing to do with the healthcare system. Perhaps the Netherlands is the best comparison because uh, their COVID infection rate has been almost identical to ours, almost uh, exactly the same number of people relative to population size. And their, their level of, of healthcare spending is also almost exactly the same as here. And uh, whatever other factors people may identify, all pretty similar between Britain and the Netherlands. Nonetheless, their COVID death rate mm -hmm. has only been half of the British rate. So that was going to be one of my questions. I'm glad you said it because we spoke at the start about austerity and you know public spending and how that you know hadn't really made a difference. But you, you, and you mentioned it there that I was going to say, is this somewhere where public spending would make a difference? But you're saying that actually in the Netherlands there's a similar level of spending. Yes, at least there was before the pandemic. I, I don't know the current yeah. figures. I 
I'd say, well, at the moment, they're probably all over the place. Um, yeah. <laughs> huge amounts of resources would, would have to be committed. And, and that's fine. In, in a pandemic, um, of course, that, uh, that is not where you want to be a penny pincher. That would be a false economy. If, if healthcare spending goes up during a, during a pandemic, that's absolutely fine. That's, that's exactly what, what should happen. But it doesn't mean that you have to maintain massive levels of healthcare spending during normal times. During normal times, uh, healthcare spending in the Netherlands is, is almost identical to the to British levels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's kicked off a bit with this particular bit, hasn't it? Because um, yeah, you had Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, writing a letter about it and things like that. What has your response been to the backlash as well? Uh, right, yeah. In in that particular case, uh, Angela Rayner misinterpreted uh, the the paper and probably quite deliberately as somehow an attack on doctors and nurses. Now, this this is uh, I'd say self evidently absurd. If somebody compares educational outcomes uh, across countries, if somebody says you you will remember the PISA study, which uh, when, when that came out, there were always articles saying uh, why are our educational outcomes so bad? Why are they not as good as, as South Korea? Uh, when that happens, nobody would uh, would say uh, how dare you attack teachers? Because obviously this has nothing to you. You're not talking about in, individual people here. You're talking about features of the overall education system. That's not something that uh, the people who work in that system can influence very much. And they're probably as as frustrated by the bad features uh, as anyone. Um, but yeah. when in in terms of healthcare, when, when somebody criticizes uh, the, the NHS as a system, then, then yes, critics will uh, deliberately misinterpret that as uh, as an attack on individual doctors and nurses, and as somehow a slight on the sacrifices that those people have made. And I would say this is this is a cheap rhetorical trick. And nobody would do this in other areas. And this is just a form of performative outrage. This is a kind of outrage signaling. This is uh, her way of saying I'm one of the good people, and uh, I'm on the side of of our doctors and nurses. But now I I wouldn't take this too seriously. And, and anyone who who actually read the report, I, I'd say nobody who who read the report would come away with the impression that this is in in, in any way uh, as, as an an attack on on individual people in the national health service. No, and like you say, it's a it's a kind of critique of the system rather than you know those those people i'm sure who are on the kind of front line pulling on their ppe as we as we kind of speak that kind of thing and you know i i think it's um it's fair to say that it doesn't always work to its uh best capacity and that's no reflection on the people i know i've spoken to plenty of doctors and nurses over my years of reporting who were just like you say just as frustrated with the complexities of the nhs as um as maybe some other people are so yeah it's it's definitely interesting i think that you you know in in the blurb when your report was released it says that the big story or the big issue here really is that there is no big story so what 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 do you kind of what do you mean by that that there is no big story is it just that everything is kind of the same 
No, there, there are lessons to to be learned in the sense that if we had another pandemic in five years' time, I mean, touch wood, so the, the absolute worst case scenario, then of course there, there would be lessons uh, to to be learned from that. I, I'm just saying we can't learn a lot for normal times. A pandemic is an extremely unusual situation. It's a time when nothing makes sense. All the the normal rules, uh, the, the rules that make sense in normal times, no longer apply. And what what we shouldn't do is uh, look at the pandemic and 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 try to draw conclusions uh, for the way we structure the economy or, or or society in in normal times it's just an extremely unusual situation and uh, what makes sense during the pandemic wouldn't make sense in normal times um, for example i mentioned the travel bans that uh, some of the the best performers taiwan and hong kong imposed early on that makes perfect sense in a pandemic that's exactly the right thing to do if uh, if you know that there's a deadly virus going around and you know that once it's there, you can't contain it, then closing the borders, okay, it's a, it may seem like an extreme measure, but it is in that situation the sensible thing to do. But we, we wouldn't conclude that therefore in normal times, uh, we should make it as, as hard as possible for people to, to travel because that, that would, uh, not just be a massive inconvenience, but that would also have uh, terrible economic consequences. And uh, there's no, in normal times, absolutely nothing wrong with international mobility. But of course, in an extreme situation like that, then uh, it, it does make sense. We should think of it more as a, a lifeboat situation. Uh, a lot of things make sense on a on a lifeboat, on, on the lifeboat. A vegetarian or a vegan uh, would eat fish because, well, uh, what else would they eat? But that doesn't mean that once they're back safely on land, uh, they would uh, become great fish connoisseurs. They they would then go back to their normal ways, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the way we should think of the of the pandemic. And uh, we, we shouldn't try to to draw to to uh, draw strong conclusions from that hmm. so i wonder just to wrap us up then i wonder what that means for this message that the government has of building back better because they seem to be pinning quite a lot of their future plans and you know by the time this is released we're speaking before the budget but when this episode goes out this will be after the budget has um has been announced they're building a lot of their future plans on this build back better ideal which you would assume has you know reaction to the pandemic do you think that's just a short-term thing in that case or would you warn against carrying over those things into you know long-term plans but the, the danger there would be that um th they're probably looking for excuses to do things they wanted to do anyway and that's always the the the, that, that in general is is my worry with this whole build back better rhetoric. Um, I don't want to read too much into it because so far it's just a slogan, and it means different things to to different people. There's there's no specific policy that right now that I could think of that uh, has been derived from from this build back better slogan. But the danger is, of course, that uh, people use the the pandemic as a justification for their own pet 
projects and for something they wanted to do anyway. I could imagine that in the case of this government, this will mean they'll use the pandemic as a justification for a much more active industrial policy in which the state mm -hmm. is more involved and tries to nurture particular industries. But the problem with, with that is that, that this has all been tried in the past. Uh, that, that was uh, the problem of 1970s Britain. Uh, I wasn't around at that time, but uh, this, this is uh, at that time, uh, Britain was considered the sick man of Europe with a sluggish economy. And that was in part because the state was so overbearing and tried to, uh, to pick winners, which in practice just meant subsidizing loss-making industries, where the problem, of course, is that when you subsidize the loss-making industries, where do you take those resources from? Well, from the prospering industries, of course, and in that way, you're holding back the economy. The state cannot predict where the where our economic future lies, where the next growth sectors, the next booming sectors are going to come from. These are things that we have to discover through the market process and uh, the, the government should in the main just go out of the way, should uh, set general rules of the game and uh, but otherwise step aside and let the private sector and let the market do it do uh, do its work. Uh, but, but politicians like to meddle, that is just uh, a natural instinct, I guess. That's that's why people go into politics. You don't go into politics uh, and with the intention of doing nothing. You don't once you're in a position of power, you you don't conclude. Oh, the best thing I could do would be to just stand there and do nothing. Uh, you want to seem somehow important, and uh, therefore that there's there's always this temptation to become for governments to become too active and too interventionist. And yeah, I could imagine that uh, some politicians might use the pandemic as just another excuse for doing what they would would have wanted to do anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Look, that's really fascinating. And um, I'm going to keep an eye on that and see what politicians are going to be announcing over the next few months. And I'll, I'll be thinking of that and thinking, oh, is this just what they were going to do anyway? And are they using the pandemic as a as a kind of leave it here? So I'm, I'm really glad you came on so we could get behind some of those headlines and delve into that. Um, thank you so much. That was really interesting. No, thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and you can find this podcast wherever you usually find your podcast, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and we love it when you leave us reviews um, and give us your feedback as well. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Jerry underscore E underscore L underscore Scott, and we will be back next week. This weekend at Augusta, it's the Masters. And with 50% off a Now Sports membership, you can catch every, 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 and every. Watch all four days of the Masters live with 50% off a Now Sports membership for three months, bringing you all 11 Sky Sports channels. Join in at nowtv.com. 18 plus, streamed via internet, offer ends 2nd of May, standard pricing after three months.